Have you ever wanted something so badly that you couldn't stop thinking about it? The mere thought of it brought exuberant joy. I've seen my youngest son, Haddon Andrew Hymeen, live this out. When he sees food, his eyes light up. Last week, my wife bought many different kinds of candy bars. And she cut them into bite-sized pieces and had all the kids rank them from best to worst. She had a Snickers bar, Kit Kat, Reese's Cup, Twix, Three Musketeers, Milky Way, Baby Ruth, which we found out is not named after the baseball player. It's actually named after a baby named Ruth. Uh, then some Kentucky candy bar that ranked last with all of our kids. Now, he here's what I witnessed. Haddon trying to eat before Sarah could finish the instructions. He has eyes locked on that chocolate, and he can't hear anything else. He, he's tunnel vision. My wife is trying to drag this thing out, build the anticipation. With every second that passes, Haddon is, Haddon is getting closer and closer to seizuring. He, he wants that chocolate. I'm concerned for his health at this point. Sarah lifts the first bite of chocolate and reaches it out to put it in his mouth. And he goes cross-eyed. I've never seen anything like it. She says, look at his eyes. And I'm like, give him the chocolate so his eyes don't get stuck like that. I have a moment of relief when she puts it in his mouth and his eyes go back to normal. With each candy bar bite, he said, mmm, I like it. This one was my favorite. His favorite was always the last one he tasted. In our text, God's children are wanting something so badly that they're going cross-eyed. They want something so badly, it's consuming them. They're not alone. I've had these unhealthy pursuits in my life. It's consumed my ever-waking moment. I couldn't eat, sleep, or work without being preoccupied by the thought of achieving it or reaching it or receiving it. Nothing else mattered but that. Even now, I'm in danger of it once again. I've got my eyes set on accomplishing something with this ministry here and how we can extend it. And that it's just consuming too much of my thought life. It's robbing too many moments with my children and too many conversations with my wife. See, God's children run the risk of becoming fixated on certain things. They could be good things, but your heart is resting in them. Your soul thinks it will bring lasting satisfaction. Your mind is determined to receive it no matter the cost. And that's when it can become dangerous. If you're new with us, we like to go through whole books of the Bible. We've been walking slowly through the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to pick up the pace today. We aren't going to run through this section, but we are going to do a brisk jog. We're covering three chapters. These three chapters walk out Israel's fixation, their obsession, their unhealthy desire for a king. In chapter 8, God's children say, We want a king. God says, I don't think you know what you're asking for. Do you know what having a king will mean for you? They respond, I don't care. We want one. And this is not in a respectful tone. This is in a childish, bratty kind of voice. We want one anyway. They are cross-eyed, totally consumed, infatuated, obsessed, fixated on having a king. In chapter 9, God says, okay. I'll find one for you. Be careful what you ask for. God may just give it to you. In this chapter, God sends us to a little town in search of a king. In chapter 10, God finds what the people want. He presents this man before his children and he says, Behold, your king. We begin this journey in chapter 8, verse 1. The word says, when Samuel became old. Let's pause here. Before we start the brisk jog, let's bend down and tie our shoe. We've watched Samuel grow up in the narrative. 
We've watched his mother face infertility and watched her pray for a child. We were there when it was announced she was expecting. We were in the delivery room when she held him for the first time. We heard her name him Samuel because God Samueled. Samuel means God heard. We watched his mother and father drop him off for lifelong service at the Shiloh Tabernacle at age three. We were there as his mother visited him once a year and brought him hand-stitched coats to stay warm in the winter. We were in the room with Samuel at age 12 when he heard the audible voice of God and Samuel responded, Speak, O Lord. We were there for all of that. But we were not there for the next 30 years. We know that the Philistines destroyed Shiloh, but Samuel escaped. He still did priestly duties, but in other locations. Last week, he came back into the narrative in his mid-30s and called the nation to repentance. They did just that, and God gave them victory over the Philistines. After this event, Samuel functioned as a judge for the people. There were two types of judges. One was a military tribal leader, like Samson, who rescued them in battles. And the other was like our court-appointed judges. They made rulings and cases and set the general courses for all the tribes. Samuel stepped into the leadership crisis and led remarkably well as a judge. So Samuel functioned as a priest and as a judge. That's chapter 7. Today, we are in chapter 8. Chapter 8 is 30 years after chapter 7. Samuel is in his mid-60s. Somewhere along the way, he got married. Somewhere along the way, his wife birthed two boys. Somewhere along the way, his hair started graying. Somewhere along the way, he lost the ability to jog. And now he walks slowly so as to not fall and break a hip. The first Samuel narrative presents Samuel aging gracefully, biblically, honorably. There's a book rep recommendation in your worship guide entitled A Good Old Age, written by Derek Prime. That book is written for Samuels who desire to age honorably, gracefully. We have Samuel now in a good old age. Our narrator is a a little more blunt than I am. In verse 1, he said, When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel. The name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. This was the current leadership structure among God's tribes. Israel was loosely organized under tribal leaders called judges. Samuel provided for Israel's future in a succession plan. Unfortunately, this plan would not turn out well. Verse 3 details the situation. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. I guess the apple did fall far from the tree. These two sons were unlike their father. They were more interested in lining their own pockets than maintaining justice. They twisted justice, took payoffs, show me the money type of judges. They were dirtbags. What irony. They were judges without justice. And this is surprising for us. Because Samuel seemed like such a promising figure in the narrative. How could his sons turn out like this? Well, that's simple. A godly father does not guarantee a godly son. The narrator does not attribute any of the behavior of the sons to the father's actions. In other words, he doesn't blame Samuel for his son's behavior. It, it, it seems Samuel did all that he could to raise them in the fear of God. But they didn't fear him. You can give your child DNA, but you can't give them a new heart. 
See, this is totally opposite of Eli and his two sons. Remember Eli the priest and his wicked sons? The narrator attributes some of their behavior to their father, to his lack of disciplining them and modeling holiness before them. But that's not the case here with Samuel. You could look at the whole book of 1 Samuel like a book about fathers and sons. There is a unique father-son dynamic with biological sons and then with adopted sons. Eli had two biological sons, but they were wicked. He raised Samuel in the tabernacle and Samuel became like an adopted son. Samuel had two biological sons, but they were wicked. So God brings a young man into his life and he functions kind of like an adopted son. We're going to meet this adopted son later in the narrative. All right, before we stand up from tying our shoe and start the brisk jog, I need to inform you of one more thing. The tribes of Israel are facing another military threat. It didn't come out of nowhere. The group had been encroaching on Israel's territory for some time. The next time we're in 1 Samuel, you'll find out who they were. But for now, you just need to know that Israel is being threatened with genocide. They want someone to come and lead them through this military instability. This new threat had them really concerned about national security. That's the setting for verse 4. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. <laughs> in their collective wisdom, Israel approaches the man of God and they say, Look, Samuel, you're old as dirt, and you're about to be in the dirt. Your succession plan with your sons failed. We want a king. You're old and bald. It's time to move on. We want someone younger, someone stronger, someone brighter, someone taller. We tried the judges thing, but now it's time that we progress to big boy organization. We need a king. Now, in many ways, their solution seems logical. Samuel is old. His boys are failing as judges. There is something that needs to happen, but what they suggested isn't it. Sometimes God's people develop foolish solutions to legitimate needs. Now, let me tell you why this request for a king was sinful. Why this obsession, this tunnel vision, this infatuation with having a king was wrong. First, it, it was sinful in its rejection. We want a king so he can protect us. God says, wasn't I doing that for you? They even say in verse 20, we want a king to fight our battles. God was their king who went out and fought their battles. This isn't the first time you faced genocide. I rescued you before, I can rescue you now. Sure, it's not the Philistines this time. It's another nation. But there is no military threat beyond my strength to deliver you. See, there is a lack of trust in God behind their request. By their request, they are rejecting God as their king. Now, Samuel took their request for a king as a personal affront. He got, he got all in his feelings. They're rejecting me as, as their judge. I've given them a lifetime of service. I'm crushed. I could have never anticipated this would have been their response. God reminds Samuel in verse 7, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. You say, Kyle, wait a minute. I thought they didn't have a king. I thought they only had judges. Yes, but they had a heavenly king, but they wanted an earthly one. Frankly, they need more than an, than an invisible king. 
They had no king, but fundamentally that was because they refused to acknowledge God as their king. The real problem was not the lack of a king, but the lack of acknowledging God as their king. Their request for a king was an act of insidious rebellion. They want a counter-king. Their demand for a king is evidence of spiritual decay. They wanted the organized machinery of the state. Someone to train a standing army. See, it was sinful in its rejection. Secondly, it was seedy in its motive. They didn't just want a king. They wanted a specific kind of king. A king like the other nations. Their kind of king. They've absorbed the surrounding culture. They want to be like everyone else. They have a desire to emulate other nations. They no longer want to be distinct. Israel is tired of being Israel. You you do realize that God separated you so that you would not be like the other nations, right Israel? So that you would always be the odd nation out. Israel was called to be unlike the other nations. This is not just a rejection of judges. This is a rejection of identity. God wants them to be different, distinct, and separated. But instead, they want to be the same, to conform, to fit in. It was seedy in its motive. Thirdly, it was selfish in its timing. It's not that they want a king. It's that they want a king right now. Impatience is a form of rebellion. The Bible is not ideologically opposed to a king. It's not ideologically opposed to a monarchy. Monarchy meaning king governing a nation. I was a a bit frustrated in my study last week because there seemed to be two schools of thought among commentators. An an anti-monarchy school and a pro-monarchy school. An anti-monarchy school, they said God was opposed to a monarchy. Israel should have never had a king. A pro-monarchy school, they say a king was good for Israel, but they seem to ignore that Israel was sinning by making this request for a king. Let's talk about whether both wrong. Anti-monarchy first. That makes no sense. Anti-monarchy. Moses, years before, anticipated a day when Israel would be governed by a king. He even prescribes the exact nature and conduct in which the king must abide. Monarchy by itself isn't sinful. This is not God's judgment on a form of government. America has never had a king. Nor do we want one. So it can be hard for us to understand. God wasn't like, you need a democracy, not a monarchy. No, he's simply saying, this isn't the time for you to have a king. A king is anticipated in earlier texts. Genesis 17, Genesis 35, Genesis 49. Numbers 24, Deuteronomy 17. Yahweh had planned for them to have a king from the times of the patriarchs and Moses. God was not anti-monarchy. God's plan was for a king under God, not instead of God. So if this text is not anti-monarchy, then it must be pro-monarchy. Well, wait a minute, Hoss. God is telling them that their request for a king is sin. And you say, Kyle, wait. Wait a minute. God intended for them to have a king, and then when they ask for a king, it is sin. Is that what you're saying? Yes and no. When God speaks negatively about kingship, it is about their motives in desiring a king. You can want the right thing for the wrong reasons. When God speaks positively about a king, it's because he wanted slash designed for a king unlike the other nations. So God tells Samuel, if they want a king, 
like the other nations. They need to know what they're in for. They need to go in with eyes wide open. So Samuel, in verse 11 through 19, brings that to the people of Israel. He says, a king is going to restrict your freedoms. He's going to take and take and take. The word take is mentioned in verse 11, 12, 13, 14, and 16. He's going to take your sons into his army. He will make them charioteers, horsemen, platoon commanders, infantrymen. He will regiment them into battalions and squadrons. Uh, they will not enlist for this. They will be taken. Not only will he take your sons, but he will take your daughters. And he will make them perfume makers, beauticians, cooks, bakers. They will work in the royal kitchen. Samuel says, not only will he take your sons and your daughters, but he will also take your best fields, your best vineyards, and your best orchards. He will take your citizens and force them to work as farmhands and work in weapon reproduction and as cleaners in his castles. Samuel says, Israel, after all that taking, the king will take more. He will take a tithe. That's the word in the Hebrew, a tenth. This is a taxation. Taxation was previously unknown. Six times the king will take. God through Samuel is not highlighting the abuses of kingship, but simply the normal practices of kingship. Samuel said, you don't want a king like the other nations. But nothing he said had any influence on the leaders of Israel. They said in verse 19, but the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel and they said, no, there shall be a king over us. And their mulish stubbornness persists. Like little pouty brats, no, we will have a king over us. Samuel goes to God with the people's response. God says, give them what they want. Give them a king. Samuel goes back to Israel and he says, I'll find, I'll find one for you. And we are left with the question, who is this king? Chapter 9 begins Samuel's search for a king. It actually, begin, it actually doesn't begin with Samuel searching for a king. It begins with Saul searching for a donkey. In verse 1, the formulaic phrasing, there was a man, that formulaic phrasing, there was a man followed by name, home region, and genealogy signals to the readers that we are beginning a new story. A, a shift, a transition is taking place. We are leaving theocracy governed by God and entering into monarchy governed by a king. Uh, th this is quite a big transition in God's unfolding drama of redemption. We are introduced to a Benjamite farm boy named Saul. His father is loaded. The largest farmer, farmer in the tribe. Uh, chapter 9, verse 2, the narrator says Saul was a handsome young man. There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward was taller than any of the people. Now, we can take a step back. We don't even know what's going to happen yet. But already we're like, this is the dude. He looked the part of a king. Tall, commanding, handsome, wealthy. The narrator focuses in on his physical attributes, not his inner character, which is significant. Their culture, like ours, placed a premium on physical attributes. It's a shame, really, that they didn't have basketball at Benjamite High. Saul would have been the farm boy Larry Bird mixed with Wilt Chamberlain. He could have been the star center. In high school, he was voted most likely to be a king. Verse 3. Now the donkeys of Kish, Saul's father, were lost. So Kish said to Saul, his son, take one of the young men with you 
and arise, go and look for the donkeys. Now, I know what you're thinking. A few missing donkeys may not, I mean, what's the big deal? Doesn't seem like much to you. But this is a, a significant chunk of the farm's way of producing crops. Today, it would be like, my three John Deere combines ran away. Go find them. So Saul takes a young, young farmhand with him, and they go searching for the donkeys. They went into the hill country of Ephraim around Shalisha, but didn't find him. They went over to Shalim, no luck. Then all through Benjamin, and still nothing. Verse 5. When they came to the land of Zuf, Saul said to his servant who was with him, Come, let us go back, lest my father cease to care about the donkeys and become anxious about us. But the young farmhand said to him, Behold, there is a man of God in this city. And he is a man who is held in honor. All that he says comes true. So now let us go there. Perhaps he can tell us the way we should go. In, in other words, let's go, Saul. He will tell us where to find the donkeys. The, the narrator presents Saul from, from his very first utterance as a timid guy, uncertain of what to do next and full of worries, just a bit hesitant. Here he listens to the young farmhand. Saul is a follower, not a leader. Now, how Saul could have lived so close to the man of God Samuel and have never heard of him seems to suggest that Saul and his rich farm family were not overly concerned about spiritual matters. They didn't attend the feasts or festivals. Saul, this young man who was head and shoulders above everyone else, this physical specimen of a man, again, worries about not having anything to give the man of God when they meet him. It was common courtesy to bring a gift, whether modest or lavish. How strong of a leader could this Saul become if he can't even come up with his own ideas? It, it was the farmhand who says, I've got a little something we can give Samuel. And there they set off for the town on the hill where the man of God lives. On their way, they passed a well at the bottom of the hill. Cities that sat on a hill required daily water carriers, and, and this was customarily women. Saul and his farmhand strike up a conversation with the women at the well. Is the man of God Samuel in town? What follows is a long one-way conversation. The women keep talking, and the men keep listening. I know that's unfamiliar territory for you. There is a Jewish midrash that says these women kept talking because they were so smitten by Saul's appearance. Others, mostly women, say that Saul wasn't getting it and he was a bit dunce. They could see the stupid look on his face so they tried to spell it out for him. They kept saying the same thing but in different ways. Summary, they said this is the perfect timing. Leave now and you'll catch Samuel. Verse 14, so they went up to the city, and as they were entering the city, they saw Samuel coming out toward them on his way up to the high place. Now, the day before Saul came, the Lord had revealed to Samuel. Let's pause here. Mark that word reveal. The word reveal is a word picture. It's visualizing pushing aside the hair that hangs over the ear and then whispering. What did God whisper to Samuel yesterday? He whispered this, verse 16. Tomorrow, about this time, I will send to you a man from the land of Benjamin, and you shall anoint him to be prince over my people Israel. Verse 17. When Samuel saw Saul, <laughs> that's unique, isn't it? When Samuel saw Saul. When Samuel saw Saul, the Lord told him, here is the man of whom I spoke to you, he it is who shall restrain my people. And Samuel invited Saul to his Saul and his farmhand to stay for a meal. 
Saul hesitates again. Ah, I'm looking for my donkey, sir. Samuel says, not only do I know you're looking for your donkeys, but your donkeys have been found. Now you come with me. At the meal, Saul knew something was up. First, he's being honored like royalty in Samuel's big banquet hall. Secondly, he's given the right thigh for his meal, which was the, the choicest piece reserved for priests. Saul hesitates and demeans himself by saying, you, you know I come from a small fry tribe, right? Samuel would not allow Saul to leave. He said, you will stay the night here. And he gave him the best room in the house. Early the next morning, Samuel tosses sandals on sleeping Saul. And he says, up, up, up. It's time for me to send you away. Saul quickly stumbles, putting on his sandals and rushing out the door. Like every good host, Samuel will accompany his guests to the edge of the city. As they approached the outskirts of the city, Samuel said to Saul, Tell your farmhand to walk on ahead of us. And when he starts walking, you stop. Because I need to reveal the word of God to you. Chapter 10, verse 1. Then Samuel took a flask of oil and poured it on his head and kissed him and said, Has not the Lord anointed you to be prince over his people Israel. Samuel just became the kingmaker. Saul just became the king. Anointing was an Old Testament ritual of conferring kingship, like coronation in the later European tradition. From this moment on, Saul is the leader over Israel, but only he and Samuel knew it. Saul is nervous. He is hesitant. No surprise. Samuel knows this and gives him three signs to further affirm his kingship. The first sign, he says, you're going to meet two men who tell you that your missing donkeys have been found and that your father is wringing his hands worried about you. Second sign, you will meet a group of people headed to worship. He told them the exact animals they would have in tow how many loaves of bread they will have on them, and that one of them will be carrying a skin of wine. First sign, specific place, specific number of people, specific words. Second sign, specific animals, specific food, specific drink. Third sign, you will meet a band of prophets returning from worship. They're going to be strumming their guitars and playing their bagpipes, and then you will join them and prophesy. God's Spirit will rush upon you and endue you with, with power for the task ahead. The Spirit will equip you for the kingship. All three of these confirming signs were accomplished. Saul knew that God had chosen him and empowered him for the kingship. Saul leaves. Saul ran into his uncle somewhere along the journey home, and his uncle says, where have you been? Well, we, we've been looking for the for the donkeys. We couldn't find them, so we went to ask Samuel, the man of God, to help us. Verse 15, and Saul's uncle said, please tell me what Samuel said to you. And Saul said to his uncle, he told us plainly that the donkeys had been found. And here's what I love about this verse. You have a comment from the narrator. It says this, but about the matter of the kingdom, of which Samuel had spoken, he did not tell his uncle anything. He didn't breathe a word to his uncle that Samuel anointed him king over Israel. He didn't, he didn't breathe a word about all the signs. Even the prophesying sign that was so public, people saw it. They asked, is Saul now a prophet? It even became a proverb, is Saul a prophet? Like a common saying around town. Now, some commentators want to give Saul a pass here. I mean, what was he supposed to say to his uncle? I'm king now. But I will give him no pass. He had an opportunity to speak truth. But instead, he concealed truth. Chicken heart. Chicken hearted Saul. 
Samuel has anointed Saul privately. Now he will confirm Saul publicly. We've got a secret anointing. And then we've got an official coronation. Notice verse 17. Now Samuel called the people together to the Lord at Mizpah. Remember, only the Lord, Saul, and Samuel knew that the king had already been chosen. But Samuel wanted Israel to realize that God was in charge of the selection process. Anticipation has been building since they heard, since they heard Samuel say, You want a king? I'll get one for you. Anticipation is building. Now he calls them all together. This is the moment these people have been waiting for. True to his calling, Samuel is preaching before he reveals to the masses who the new king is. He rebukes them for wanting a king to rescue them because God has a long history of rescuing them. But then he moves on, verse 20. Then Samuel brought all the tribes of Israel near, and the tribe of Benjamin was taken by Lot. Provisions were made in the Old Testament that they could seek the Lord's guidance this way. By lot, by dice. Proverbs 16, 33, The lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. This process excluded human choice and relied only on God's wisdom. This would prevent all disputes. Samuel is doing an elimination process. He started with 12 tribes, and the lots eliminated each one until there was only one tribe left, Benjamin. Then he brought all the tribe of Benjamin together by its clans. Each clan was eliminated one by one until there was only one left, the Matrite clan. Then he dismissed everyone else and cast lots just among the Matrites, and it went to the son of Kish, Saul farm boy. By the process of elimination, Saul was designated as the Lord's choice. Now, an interesting little note here. Historically, lots were used to discover the guilty party, not the winning party. Remember when lots were thrown on a ship and Jonah was designated as the guilty one? Even this whole king selection process is a stinging rebuke. 1 Samuel chapter 8, we want a king. 1 Samuel chapter 9, I'll find one for you. 1 Samuel chapter 10, behold your king. Samuel stands up and he says, Behold your king. And he sees some weird faces looking back at him, so he looks over and Saul is not there. Samuel looks around, Saul is missing. He's nowhere to be found. This coronation event has turned into a comedy rather than a dignified coronation. Runaway donkeys, that's one thing. But what do you make of a runaway king? They cannot find Saul anywhere. He's disappeared. It's, it's gotten so bad that they go to the Lord in prayer and they say, uh, 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 God, I know you gave us Saul as, as the king, but we can't find Saul. Uh, Lord, where is the king? God answers them in verse 22. He says, he's hiding among the baggage. <laughs> Here's your king, the one scared to be a king, hiding among a bunch of sleeping bags. Again, he's a chicken heart. Years after this event, Israel will face Goliath. And why do they want a king? They wanted someone who would go out before them. Saul is the tall one, but he doesn't go. He's hiding among the bags again. Tall in stature, short in courage. The narrator paints Saul as a tall, impressive, imposing figure. But a bit clumsy. He's fumbling around like an idiot. He's reluctant. Verse 23. <laughs> this is hilarious. Then they ran and took him from there. Can, can you see? They're throwing sleeping bags and luggage everywhere, digging out their king. Pull him out. 
whoa, he's a, he's a big boy. Squeezing his biceps. Yes, he will do. The verse continues, and when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. So he's meeting the criteria of what the people wanted. Verse 24, and Samuel said to all the people, now let's just pause here. I read Warren Wearsby on this a couple weeks ago, and he said, Samuel is doing what he can to salvage this embarrassing situation. Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? There is none like him among the people. And all the people shouted, Long live the king! That would not have been what I would have shouted. That would not have been my response. I would have been like, he, He's going to lead us into battle? This guy? He's got a sock on his head. He's been hiding in the laundry. This is the one? It really doesn't matter what I would say. I wasn't there. Verse 25. Then Samuel told the people the rights and duties of the kingship. And he wrote them in a book and laid it up before the Lord. Then Samuel sent all the people away, each one to his home. The enthusiastic hopes of the citizens shout through the streets. Long live the king. We are now finished with the exposition, but our work in this text isn't over. What do we do with this story? It is so far away geographically from where we are, over 6,000 miles. It is so far away chronologically from where we are, over 3,000 years. It is so far away politically from where we are, monarchy compared to a democracy. But it is not far from us theologically. So I have four theological connections to bring this text home. Theological connection number one. Sometimes God will give us what we want. But our liberty never overturns the eternal purpose of God. God gave them the king they wanted. The king they clamored after. He gave it to them even though he knew it would be bad for them. Be careful what you ask for. God may just give it to you. What if this happens to you? You ask for a king and you get one. What do you do when you've made an unwise decision? You've moved to a certain city. You went to a certain college. You married a certain person. You took the wrong job. You assume you are now out of God's will. You went cross-eyed for a moment making the decision. And you made the wrong one. Now what? You must realize that your liberty does not overturn the eternal purposes of God. God protects his people through their lack of foresight. Let me say that again. God protects his people through their lack of foresight. How many of you are thankful for that? Even when God's people fail to consult him, he remains faithful and makes provisions for his people. He doesn't throw his hands up and say, I'm done with them. John Piper calls this passage, the spectacular sins and their global purpose and the glory of Christ. God did give them a king, but he was not giving them to the king. Four times God refers to them as my people. This story illustrates God's fidelity to Israel no matter what they do. He's doggedly persistent in his mercy. And the same is true of his mercy for you. That's theological connection number one. Theological connection number two. The providence of God is on display in even the small details of life. These three chapters illustrate God's utter control even over the smallest details of our life. This is really a lost and found story. There's a lost donkey, then a found donkey. There's a lost king, then a found king. 
Donkeys will be donkeys. Kings will be kings. There's a thick chain of ordinary events that make this story happen. Donkeys aren't lost. They are divinely led away. Chance meetings at a well don't happen. It was ordained by God. Even in the small details, God is orchestrating everything to accomplish his purpose. Nothing is happenstance. Often, you don't see what is happening. You don't see the big picture. You only think you're out looking for donkeys. But the Almighty achieves his purposes in and through the apparently random and mundane pieces of life. Theological connection number three. All earthly kings disappoint. Don't become infatuated with them. The last election season, everyone lost their ever-loving mind. And it's going to happen again. Don't think a Saul will come and solve all your problems. Don't do what Israel did. Have a misguided reliance on the naked strength of a leader. All earthly kings disappoint. I'm not saying they're not incredibly promising. I'm saying they will fail you. Israel became so consumed with their little political security that they transferred their faith from God to a political leader. Don't let that happen to you. Theological connection number four. This isn't the only time a group of people have been told, behold your king. Samuel, the king maker, causes us to look forward to Jesus, the true king. In 1 Samuel 10, Samuel said, behold your king. The people responded, I like him. He's tall, handsome, and strong. I like him. In Matthew 21, the prophet said, behold your king. And the people responded, He's disappointing. <laughs> Is he riding a mini donkey into Jerusalem? He doesn't look particularly impressive. Are you sure this Jesus is the king? In Mark 8, Jesus said, Behold, your king will suffer. The disciples responded, You're going to suffer? Yes. I'm the king, but I'm nothing like the king you were expecting. I'm a new kind of king. I'm not a king like the other nations. See, a rejected king was incompatible with their theology. The cross makes sense to us because we know the end of the story, but remember, it didn't for these people. When Jesus declared his journey would end at a cross, they protested. Because kings win. They don't die on crosses. Tony Morita says, when people heard Messiah, they heard the king who will conquer their enemies. They didn't expect a Messiah to be crucified. What kind of king is this? When John Calipari went to the University of Kentucky to coach basketball, you know that evil empire, everyone expected him to win championships. Anything less would be a disappointment. But imagine if Calipari showed up and said, sorry guys, but... We're going to plan on losing every game. The people would be like, what? No, we're not. We're Kentucky, not Vanderbilt. And in a similar way, it was hard for people to grasp a crucified king. They expected an earthly king to fulfill political hopes. They pictured a nationalistic figure. Son of God, the king of the Jews, fight Israel's battles. Jesus, who had a government on his shoulders. Not Jesus who had a cross on his shoulders. Now their king doesn't win, he dies. And it's hard for them. And it's still hard for us. Paul later says this message is foolishness to some people. Jesus came as king saying, I must suffer. One scholar pointed out that before this moment... Never before this moment had anyone in history connected suffering with the Messiah. Suffering with the King. 
The word must here modifies the control sentence. Jesus said, I must suffer. I must be rejected. I must die. And, and now some of you that are, that are maybe new to Christianity, maybe today is your first exposure. Maybe, maybe you've been exposed for a couple of months and, and you ask the question, couldn't Jesus have, have just been thrown off a cliff or died of old age? Why did he have to suffer? Well, because his death had to be a violent one. The Old Testament promises the shedding of blood. Jesus is a new kind of king, but he's a king who will out-king all the rest. In John chapter 19, Pilate said to the crowd, Behold your king. And the people responded, Crucify him. God's king is not like the other nations, and it infuriates people. Kill him. The world has their kings, and God has his king. Let's just do a little comparison. I'm not going to put it up a, on a chart, but I just want you to know I have a chart in my notes right here. Let's do a comparison. King Saul, chicken-hearted. King Jesus, lion-hearted. King Saul took, took, took. Saul will live out the description for a king in our text. King Jesus gave, gave, gave. He came to serve. King Saul, reluctant. <laughs> Hiding among the baggage. King Jesus, willing. Walking to the cross. Even though Jesus wasn't the king that people expected him to be. He wasn't the king people wanted him to be. He was the king people needed him to be. He's our king. Long live the king. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.